As we continue in that request, we look to the Lord and turn our Bibles this morning, if you have them with you, to Hebrews chapter 5. We begin the portion of our worship gathering, which is meant to consecrate the people of God by the Word of God. Our hearts, and therefore our hands, and our feet are meant to be shaped by this moment in our assembling this week. Hebrews chapter 5, as we handle this section of Scripture, the paragraph before us is considered by most to be one of the most challenging warning passages in all of the letter to the Hebrews. There are five warning passages in Hebrews, and I would agree that this one is the most challenging. I want us to read it humbly and hear the word of the Lord speak. In Hebrews 5, verse 11, we'll begin. About this we have much to say. It is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, and you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators 
of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is the word of the Lord when he had his blessing to its reading. You can be seated and children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. The need of this text is real. It's heavy. A text that warns a people that when it comes to the basic principles and the oracles of the Word of God have become dull, distracted, preoccupied, is a warning that is relevant. It's urgent for us this morning. It is an obvious concern. And its application is undeniable. However, for a few weeks now, I've been thinking about this text and my desire to proceed with an obvious humility. I understand the risk here of standing in front of you and being a person who has the wonderful privilege of being employed to study and teach the Scripture and to say to you that you have a Bible literacy problem and it to come off as exclusively arrogant and from someone who's arrived to someone who needs to arrive. And I'm very, very aware of that. And I hope, by God's providence, to avoid that perception in my delivery. Because this warning is real, and it's real to all of us. I got a text last Sunday afternoon, after hearing Will faithfully teach through Ephesians 5, from a sister in our church. And the text was a reminder that she would be praying for me, as she had read ahead and seen how this text could be hard for us to hear, and perhaps hard to say. That was a very thoughtful text of encouragement, and I appreciate that prayer from that sister. I don't want to stand here as an elder who presumes to be exempt from the warning. The warning is real, and the warning is real to me. I want, I want to start this way. Uh, from time to time there will be people who will say something like this about uh, me. Uh, maybe it applies to our other uh, preaching elders. They'll say something like, I think he would be really well suited to teach at a seminary. Now, I don't think that's meant to be an insult. However, I think sometimes it's an expression of someone who says, man, it's really hard to follow. And he says a lot of stuff that's hard to figure out. Well, there are a couple of good applications from that statement. One is that when, when I say something that's hard to understand, that's just a me problem. That's not a truth problem. The truth of God's word is easy to understand. When I muddle it, don't blame the word, that's just me. Second, we have a state of assumption in our generation, that is far too low of seminary quality teaching. I can't think of a reputable seminary that would have me as a teacher. They would say, well, why don't you first come be a student, then we'll consider it. 
So please don't insult the quality of sound evangelical Christian seminaries, I would say. And then thirdly, I would say, sometimes that is, humbly, the statement of someone who is expressing a frustration that it is hard to acclimate to the corporate teaching of Scripture when perhaps, just perhaps, they have not had a regular diet of Scripture. And it's hard to jump in. So there are a couple of reasons why a person might express that. However, I understand that this text says a lot to me. And I hope that I'm able to communicate it in a way that you'll hear it has a lot to say to our church this morning. The title for these sermons, and there'll be at least three. I'm not sure if there will be more than three. I am wrestling at the moment with how to handle this morning's text. I have inquired, I've asked other people in church, how should I do this? I have asked my family, how should I do this? This series will come out in these three parts. Concerns, consequences, and confidence. And all that I read this morning will come out into those three sermons. There'll be three different sermons. What I don't know right now is if the first one, which is today, concerns, is going to be a one-part sermon or a two-part sermon. I hope to figure it out in about 30 minutes. I asked my family last night. We had gone out to eat last night. It was a really sweet time together. We were driving back, and all my girls were in the car, and we were enjoying some time. And I said, this sermon will be more understandable if I preach it all in one sitting. But I have far too many notes for the time allotted. Do you think I should cut it into two parts and preach it shorter, even though it might be harder to understand, but it would be less time? And one of my girls, without a moment of hesitation, said, two parts. <laughs> so, some of you will feel that way. And I'm not sure how it will go. I've been praying about it, just so you know, up to just a few minutes ago, just praying, Lord, what will I do with this? I have a deep burden to preach this well but I don't want to preach it so long that it's hard to hear. And I'm at peace right now, as I stand before you, for maybe the first time ever in 25 years of preaching. I'm at peace right now to say there is a time on the clock where I will look up at the end of the first point, and if we come to an expiration, we will get the application, and we'll pick up the next part next week. But I don't want to race through the first part. I want to be able to speak to you the first part. One of my concerns is that if I do race, it will come off as maybe a heavy lecture. And I want to have time to pause and to speak gently because this text uh, is a hard one to hear. And so I want to speak it in a shepherding way. There are these five warning texts in Hebrews. This one is challenging. This warning, which I just read in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, it comes with a front-end concern. However, it also comes with a back-end confidence. So these, what could be three different sermons, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3, make up a concern. Verse 4 through 8, a consequence and verse 9 through 12, a confidence. The burden for this sermon today can be emphasized by the critical issue I'm going to refer to as biblical illiteracy. 
biblical illiteracy in our generation has prompted some researchers to categorize this as an epidemic. Some of the people who research the state of the church for a living would say we're living through an epidemic of biblical illiteracy in the church. Two researchers, George Gallup and Jim Costelli, write this. Americans revere the Bible, but they don't understand it. Because they don't understand it, they don't read it, and have therefore become a people of biblical illiterates. That is hard to even read. I fit in the people that they're referring to. I am part of the church. It's hard to read. And there's a part of my own flesh that would like to just dismiss that as a mistake on their part and move on in my own perception of it'll be okay. However, as I come to this text, I'm reminded that the concern isn't the final word. There is a consequence if the concern lingers, but there's also a confidence. There's hope at the back end. So let me embrace the hard word so that I might rejoice in the confident promise at the end. The dark before the dawn, if you will. In June of 1940, Winston Churchill gave his finest hour speech to the members, citizens of the United Kingdom. He said this, The battle of France is over and the battle of Britain is about to begin. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned toward us. If we can stand, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. Let us therefore brace ourselves for the duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. And as I thought about this text, with this warning, the grave danger of owning and treasuring and even becoming familiar with the Bible and yet not knowing it is turned now to us. And if the church on earth remains for a thousand years, let it be said in this moment, God produced a revival through the literacy of his people with his word. And I, I think about Churchill's call to arms, call to action. And I think about a call like that to us, to me this morning. So let me pray and then teach. Father God, you know my heart. You know why I feel inclined to call out to you to teach carefully and lovingly and humbly. You know it's because my flesh 
requires prayerfulness. Father, I do want to preach the weight of this concern. And so I pray that my delivery and my personal choice of words would in no way hinder your spirit doing a great work to give us today a fresh, joyful commitment to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My sermon for today is going to unpack tentatively in two parts. I hope to start with verses 11 through 14 and show us clearly the concern that they are people of dull hearing when it comes to the hardest things to teach in the Bible. These people are of dull hearing. And therefore, it becomes really complicated to teach the most pertinent, relevant, joy-inducing things of Scripture. That is where I plan to start. A concern with how the Bible student is able to handle the Bible. Then, if time permits, to go on to chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and highlight the hope, the solution for healthy progress that the Scripture gives us. So, concern and the solution. Let's start with the concern. It's found in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 of Hebrews chapter 5. It reads this. About this, referring to the previous paragraph, Pastor Will taught us well last week, especially relating to the part where Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he says about Jesus being a Melchizedek-like high priest. I want to teach you, but I can't because it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to have been teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There is, in that text, a relevant concern. Have the people of God become dull to hearing the story of God's word? And if so, do we expect there will be a gross omission of discernment? Yes, we do. This sounds a little loud, by the way. Does it sound loud? You're okay? Sounds loud to me. Maybe I'll come down there. (coughs) Will there be a omission of discernment? Is there, may I ask, is there an omission of reasonable discernment in this generation? Hmm. Yes. Yes. 
There is a staggering omission of discernment in this generation. Let me give you an example. In the last three weeks, I have witnessed as one very, very small fish in a very, very big pond, a debate that is going on over something that a really well-respected minister said about homosexual weddings and whether or not a grandmother should or shouldn't attend such an event. That single example has served me as an illustration of a lack of discernment. I would say loving and humbly, I personally would discern not to answer that national question to a national audience with a myriad of particular examples that should be considered but could not possibly have been considered in the time allowed. I just wouldn't have answered that question. A grandmother calls in to a national broadcast and says, Pastor, beloved, trusted, well-respected, my grandchild is participating, is having a union that is a homosexual union. Should I attend? He chose, in that moment, to answer with an emphasis on the way we might love sinners. Loving sinners is something Jesus taught us to do, so that there's relevance there. But do we get to redefine what a marriage is since it's an institution God established? And here, now he, did he make a mistake there? Okay. But here is where I become really concerned. There has been an expression of Christian cancel culture since his answer. It's just Christian cancel culture. I'm not going to apologize for that statement. It's a, uh, um, it's a rampant infection of fallen culture imposed upon the Christian church. And it's disgusting. Okay? Maybe your hero came out this week and blasted that particular speaker. And so you're like, wait, what? Okay. I don't have to agree with his answer to decide that I can graciously disagree. But if I've abandoned all discernments, then yeah, let's have his head. Because I wouldn't answer it that way. Now, did he lean in a little too heavily to Jesus' new commandment I give you that you love each other? Maybe he leaned too heavily on that. And he, he didn't honor our issues. Like, listen, this is, a, this is a battle of our generation. This homosexual sexual identity, this is a real battle of our generation. And so maybe, maybe he didn't respect the fight we're fighting. Maybe, maybe he put too much emphasis on Jesus' command. That all the commandments are fulfilled in this one statement. Love God and love each other. Maybe. But I do know this. I don't know how to settle that question. But I do know this. That if we forsake discernment, we will have all sorts of embarrassing public debates among Christians who just want to tear each other down because of disagreements about how to carry out Christian life. That's what's at stake. An absence of discernment. 
and what you say and then what people say about what you said could be all sorts of tragedy if we don't have discernment. And how will we get discernment? The solid food of the word. So he says here, I have much to say about the Melchizedek high priestly order of which Jesus is, but I can't yet. So for 24 verses, I'm going to tell you why I wish I could get right to the Jesus Christ Melchizedekian priesthood, but I can't, so I'm going to take 24 verses and explain why I wish I could just get right to the teaching about Christ after the order of Melchizedek. Because people are dull of hearing. Now would you please identify with me that his concern is not that people have a lack of intelligence. You are not a generally illiterate people, he says. He does not say, well, if you were just smarter people, I could teach this. Not what he says. He also doesn't say, this subject matter is so intellectually taxing, it shouldn't be taught to anyone. He doesn't say that either. He says simply, you are dull of hearing. The English translation puts the word sluggish. The ESV or the legacy or the um, New American uses the word dull. The Holman Christian uses the word lazy. They all fit. You are sluggish. You are dull. You are lazy in hearing. The reader won't understand the truth if they don't want to understand the truth. And so the fundamental issue, hear, hear this, the fundamental issue facing the audience isn't their intellect, but their morals. Do you want to know the word of God, he says. As of right now, he says to the audience, it doesn't seem like you do. Because when I don't want to know the word of God, I could say one of two things. I could say, you're not teaching it well. Sometimes that's true. Or you could say, why are you getting into those weeds of things that we're not even supposed to know? I mean, really, are we supposed to know that? I hear that a lot from Westerners. Western Bible students say that one a lot. I don't think it's our job to try to figure out what that really difficult text is saying. Hmm. There are some things we're not supposed to know. They haven't been told to us. I get that. Oh, God's complexity. I'm not supposed to discern every nuance of our majestic Godhead. But the things he wrote down for my learning, I am supposed to know. Take, for example, if someone gave you a treasure map. He took that treasure map. That treasure map had a little thing on the corner. You are here. And then a black line went like this. And then it went all the way over. And the black line ended at a X. And you have the treasure map, and it says on the top, this is the treasure map to the hidden treasure. Okay, all right. Well, that's, that's all good and fine, but I don't, I don't know the social security number of the map's author. So, you know, really, it's just debate, I guess. You just have to leave it. Let's put the map away. No, there are some things that are not for us to know. But everything on God's revealed map is for us to believe. 
And so sometimes we dismiss it by saying, it's just not for us. Now look, the author goes on and he says, for although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The basic principles refers to those elementary principles or rules, the starting point. As students of the word, we may need to relearn the basics of faith. But in this case, the readers are indicted for needing to be taught over again. He says, again. When they should be teachers, they should be teaching level 200 classes, they need to go back and retake level 100 classes. So it's important for you to hear that this Christian author isn't saying, what's wrong with you? No one's even taught you this, and you don't know it? He's not saying they've never been taught. That would be unfair. He's saying you have been taught, but you can't handle what you were taught in a way that gets you ready to start teaching other people, which, by the way, by the way, is a fundamental cause of being, for being taught. A fundamental reason for you sitting here today and being taught is not to, you know, check the Christian box. I did Christianity today. I, you know, I gold star. The fundamental reason for you being taught is to equip you to teach. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2. Paul says to young Timothy, the same things I've taught you teach to people who will teach to people. So Paul doesn't say, hey Timothy, I'm going to teach you so that you can be a super impressive teacher and all the people dull of hearing will admire you for your teaching. <laughs> he says teach people who will become teachers of people who will teach people who will teach people just goes on but you're not he says here in Hebrews you need to relearn all over again the basic teachings of the oracles of Christian faith and he uses an analogy about food uh, I enjoy food you like food yeah. Greek food. I like Greek food. I like Greek food. Um, I like anything that uh, used to have a face. That's good. Not maybe anything. Most things used to have a face. I, uh, I recently got into this thing. Uh, I'm not going to say it right. Uh, you might help. Sous vide? Sous vide? You know where you cook steak in a bag in a, in a, uh, a hot water? Wow, I did that. Anybody in here done that? Anybody at all? Yes? We're going to talk later, okay? Because that's impressive. Yeah, so I did it for the first time. I took a pretty bad piece of steak. You know, it wasn't prime cut. Put in a pot of water, which felt wrong. And then put that thing down in that gets the water to like 115 degrees for like three hours or whatever it was. And, and I took it out and then you, you sear it. And I'm sorry to do this right now. 11.17. And I, I, that's good food. I, I like that. That was amazing. It was pretty impressive. Um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And so when I read this text about, about nutrition, and I think there, there's food I like, and, and milk, <laughs> milk is a supplement to something, right? It goes in the cereal. I'm not living by it. 
So, but he uses this analogy. And let me, let me restate the analogy this way. He says, if, if, if your diet is milk, then you're this. And if your diet is meat, then you're this. So let me just say it plainly. I think we all understand. If your diet is milk, then you're a nursing baby. And if your diet is meat, then you're a hunter. And I think that fits with the way we handle the Bible. Do we nurse indifferently on our presuppositions of the Bible? Like you've, you've got your five or six proof texts that you really love. They tell you how you're going to be saved no matter what. And they, they tell you how God's going to bless you through this life. And ultimately you're going to go to heaven. And you have those six verses and you're just like, I don't need anything else. Don't bother me with the rest of the stuff. I love these. Or, or are you hunting? I, th- I think hunting takes confidence. I think it takes a sense of security. Hunting can be dangerous, right? You go hunting. Wait, I never saw that before. Like, like you go hunting to Romans 10. And you read in verses 9 and 10. With the mouth we confess and with the heart we believe and are saved. And you're like, confess your sin and be saved. And then you go to Matthew 7 near the end of the chapter, and you hear Jesus say, not everyone who confesses of me, I am the master, the master, gets into heaven. You go, ah, that's not one of my life verses. I'll take Romans 10. And so there can be a risk, right? There can be a risk when you go to the Bible and you hunt. And you might be caught with a moment where you're, oh, wait, 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 did I just threaten my faith? Stay in that moment. Lean into that moment. Keep hunting. Your faith grows there. Your faith grows there. I'm not, I'm not inviting you to be a critic, but I'm telling you, press on the Word of God as hard as you can press, and it will not fail. So be a hunter. Lack of exposure to God's Word will have the same effect that a lack of nutrition has on us physically. It will cause us to be malnourished. <coughs> Excuse me. You might remember a couple years ago, actually about five years ago, there was a news story of a young lady, 17 years old. She passed out at work. She passed out. When the paramedics arrived, they found that her tongue had swollen and filled her mouth. Well, what, what was that? In the research of trying to figure out what was wrong with her, they discovered that this 17-year-old young girl had a diet almost exclusively of McDonald's chicken nuggets. That was what she liked. And she ate them almost all the time. There were no fruit, no vegetables in her diet. McDonald's chicken nuggets, which may or may not be chicken. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's chicken parts, I'm sure. By the way, by now we all know how this is going to end, right? I'm not preserving time this morning, so bring those handouts back next week. I hope it's helpful. Verse 13, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word. A child, unskilled in the word of righteousness. Their disposition was this. It's to come to a couple favorite verses. You pick them out. Most of them come from the New Testament. And you pick them out. And maybe you pick a part of a verse. And you come to those verses and you're like, yep, that's good. I 
I can live contently with those. Their disposition was to settle down at the point they had arrived at because to go any further would have meant severing some old ties. We're not going to get to it today, but that's chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Old ties. Severing some old ties. It was for them this dullness of hearing to take these favorite texts and just go, that's enough, that's enough. Don't confuse me with the whole thing. It was to take their myopic understanding of their religious history and impose that on the truth of biblical theology rather than look at the whole of Scripture to see the big story. The notion here is that these basic principles of the oracles of God have something to do with Jesus as Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament. When he says there's something hard to tell you, that, I think, is the simplest way to describe for us what he means. He wants to tell them about the high priest, Jesus. The theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. But he wants to use the Old Testament to explain Jesus to them. Particularly, Melchizedek. So, if we're to zoom in on one area where the author is saying, you're not mature Bible students. If I, if I, if as a pastor I just got to zoom in on one area, here's the one I chose this week. Biblical theology. I think one of the central issues he's concerned about is their inability to understand Jesus from every book of the Bible. The author wants to tie together the Old Testament priestly office with Christ, the Messiah, and the priesthood of Melchizedek. The author says, I wish I could explain this to you, but it's going to take you understanding that it's one story in Genesis, Exodus, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. It's one story. One biblical story of God. Theology. Biblical theology. But the people that the author is writing to either are not able or are not willing to see one story. So he says, you need someone to teach again the basic principles of God. It might seem to us like a contradiction to say, we have taught you and you couldn't understand it, so we need to teach it again. Because you would say, that doesn't sound right. If you taught me and I didn't understand it, you have to teach me different. That's not what he says. And he uses nursing babies as the example. I remember with our firstborn. You remember how mindful you were of everything with your firstborn? I remember with our firstborn. I had never heard of it before. But what is it? Rice cereal? Rice cereal? I remember putting rice cereal in bottles of milk and having to cut the top off thicker so that you could basically chew your milk? 
What if, what if we had said to our children, okay, we really want you to get to a place where you're eating a full diet of meat and vegetables and fruit and the whole food pyramid, so have this bottle of milk. Okay, you ready for the meat? Okay, well have this bottle of milk then. That, that's not the way we wean babies. We wean babies by putting something chewy in the milk and then putting something that stays on a spoon, kind of, in baby food, which is a bad part of weaning, right? You get through that. That's how we wean children. So let's just listen, Bible student, be cautious about saying the best way to get me to the meat stage is by repeated milk. No one weans a child like that. And that's a fitting analogy here from the author. What would happen if the teacher did succumb to the temptation to just keep giving milk? If 2 Timothy 3 is correct, it might be tempting to give milk. Because people will surround themselves by teachers who will rub on their ears. And it can be a nice way to grow a gathering. But it's a sad gathering after a while. What would happen, though, if the teacher did succumb to just more milk, more milk? Verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Discernment training happens. If we expect of ourselves, if I expect, Rob, milk was a blessing in that moment, but now there is meat to enjoy, then I begin to engage in the maturing practice of disciplining discernments and distinguishing between good and evil. What happens if we don't? Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because they've rejected knowledge. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. The writer here is emphasizing that those who are mature are able to discern between good and evil. Like Proverbs 2.10, wisdom will enter your mind and knowledge will delight your heart when exposed to the word. The evidence of their immaturity was seen in the fact that they should be teaching by now, which is a compliment. This is a hard text, but the word ought to be teachers, that's good to hear. That's encouraging. Like you're not of a secondary class that you can't teach the gospel to other people. You are capable. You are sufficient for such things. That's encouraging. You ought to be. You ought to be blessing other worshipers with the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. In the middle of all this, like heavy concern, that's encouraging word. The people... If left on milk, if never being able to teach, but always being content to be taught, will perish for lack of knowledge. 
Here's one moment I want to I take a second to say this is not just a congregation problem. This is a pulpit concern. And, and to, to highlight that, I want to share a sermon I listened to four years ago at a pastor's conference, a pastor calling pastors to be careful in the way they teach because it might produce biblical infants. He says this. In recent years, there has been a, quote, gospel-centered trend in preaching that has not produced Bible-saturated, doctrinally rich, mature, stable churches. So I want to offer an alternative to those who think that, quote, preaching Christ or preaching the gospel from every text means dealing in generalities with each text. Hovering just over the text, seldom explaining the words and the phrases, and then moving on from the matter of the text and running to a sort of crescendo of atonement, the forgiveness of sins, so that everyone can leave the challenge feeling relieved. He says, I think it tends to train people in bad habits of how to read their Bibles by diminishing the rigor and earnestness with which they must meditate on the very words of Scripture. And second, I think it tends to weaken their seriousness of pra practical, biblical imperatives on how to live the Christian life by inserting the substitutionary atonement of Christ at every critical call to faithfulness. I hope you were able to follow that. I've saved that sermon on my home screen. On my computer. I share that with you now to say, I don't want you to think this is me standing up in front of you saying, I get paid to handle the Bible a lot and I've gotten a little bit better at it. What's wrong with you? Some of what's wrong with churches is what's wrong in the way we're teaching, right? So we're, we all need to grow in this call. Pulpits and pews alike. Perhaps, church, we're losing our ability to just concentrate. Perhaps we're just not good at paying attention for very long. Perhaps we've surrounded ourselves by distractions. Have you thought about the way five-second video clips shape your mind? How do a hundred five-second video clips prepare you to sit and do what you're doing right now? For some of us, maybe Instagram or Twitter have filled the place Bible studies should have. Maybe, maybe your version of distraction from the Bible is a little more sanctified. Maybe you're like Martha. Maybe you've said, I'm in the kitchen. I'm doing programs. We know the story of Mary and Martha, right? Martha. Jesus, tell Mary to leave the word of life 
and get to work. And Jesus said, seriously? That's a paraphrase. (laughs) Or maybe, friend, maybe it's even more subtle than that. Maybe you sit here today and you say, I am 100% committed to the word that was taught to me when I first believed. I was told where to find verses and how to memorize those verses. And those verses are undeniably therapeutic to me. I don't know how I'd make it through my day without that verse. And maybe that satisfies what should be an appetite for the word. Because you say, I've got like a dozen verses memorized. And they all make me feel better. This is a concern. Let me finish this morning by saying what is not the remedy and then what is. I want you to know that the concern applies to all of us. All of us. Each one of your elders, definitely myself, everyone who teaches a core seminar here, everyone teach. the concern in some way applies to all of us. We're all in the same boat. The potential to become distracted or preoccupied or unskilled or unwilling in a healthy diet of the Bible. The remedy, friend, is not dead orthodoxy. I'm not commending to you get more Bible information. It's not a remedy. Puritans used to call that all light but no heat. Dead orthodoxy. Friend, I'm, I'm, I'm imploring, I'm begging you to understand right now I am not commending that you race to the World Wide Web and find your next favorite blogger. That is not God's plan for his people. That is not God's plan. I'm not saying every blog is bad. I'm not saying I don't listen to some. But I would tell you that the weekly diet for God's people is meant to be his church, not the internet. Please, please be much more careful. I just asked our elders about a month ago. I said, would the church today be in a better state if we had no access to the internet? No free PDFs, no articles written by church fathers hundreds of years ago, no countless number of good sermons, if we had none of it, but just the local church, would the church be in a better state? I'm not commending to you to run to the web and find your next favorite blogger or preacher. There's a reason for that. I'm not saying that they're not good teachers, but I'm telling you that you're going to be most inclined to surround yourself with teachers who say what you would say. And only if you assume that what you say is infallible should you surround yourself with teachers who say what you say. Thirdly, I'm not saying that we should lose hope in the church. I want to make that clear. I've stood here and tried to communicate humbly that I have room to grow. I just said to you a moment ago, your elders have room to grow. And I have said that the people you are in church life with, who are meant to minister to one another, have room to grow. But I am not saying that you should lose hope in the church. 
The church is sometimes easy to take shots at. This text isn't taking a shot at the church. So what is the solution? Here's what I would give you. The solution is to remain humble, faithful, and vigilant, and look to Scripture. Because even the first three verses of chapter 6, which we will study next week, will address the issue of solution. And let me leave you with this. I referenced biblical theology a moment ago. How do we apply a biblical theology? I read a long list of things this week that only heighten my concern for some patterns that we apply in church life with great intentions that actually are counterproductive to biblical theology. I've suggested one of them is the way that we memorize a dozen proof text verses and then have a, a real satisfied contentment. That's one of them. If, if, if we come to the conclusion that the verses we have appropriately hidden in our hearts have satisfied our need for the full of biblical theology, we're dull in hearing. So what is biblical theology? <clears throat> biblical theology, I'm just going to read this and we're going to close in prayer, is not our own theology, but it's the theology of the biblical writer. The most important question about you is what do you think about God? And the most, the most important question of every biblical author is what are they thinking and saying about God? So it's not your theology gone to Scripture to make it fit. It's their theology. It's their conviction about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. Understanding biblical theology <coughs> requires a health... <coughs> A healthy way of reading scripture. <clears throat> it's called hermeneutics. Let me give you a three-legged stool for hermeneutics. First, when you read the Bible, read it historically. Don't arrange the Bible teaching topically. Rather, understand that each pertinent biblical passage exists in an original setting. Second leg of the stool. Inductive. Make every effort to approach Scripture with an open mind. I know it sounds dangerous. One of the, one of the most gracious gifts God has given me in my time as His child... is putting on my heart a burden to preach the Bible as it is. And, and I do it fearfully most often. I'm most often afraid. Have you ever walked around church and seen me scrambling to like print my notes in the, in the last seconds? Bruce Beatty was just in the office between Sunday school and church, and I was working on my notes. I want you to understand, that's not because I'm indifferent. That's not because it doesn't matter to me and I got distracted by checking something else. That's because I never, ever feel ready. Never. Give me five more minutes. I don't want to say this wrong. Never feel ready. If we moved a service back three weeks, I would study all three weeks. And one of the greatest gifts God has given me in that burden is that I've not been allowed to come to Scripture with my own ideas and force Scripture to say them. 
multiple times I've stood in a pulpit like this one with an idea in my mind about what the biblical authors said. I went to teach those books to the people and I was changed right in front of them. A sermon series on a book of the Bible. I'm going to prove that this book says what I think. And all of a sudden it doesn't. So be inductive. Come to the scripture with open mind. Employing an authorial intent. The author's intent. What did the biblical author intend to convey in that given passage? And then thirdly, descriptive. We have to attempt to see the biblical teaching on any given subject by respecting the terminology used by those authors. By the scriptures themselves. Biblical theology, therefore, flows naturally from careful biblical interpretation as it tries to explore the teaching of major themes of scripture within the canon of the whole biblical storyline. That's what I would give you. Fall in love with biblical theology. God is telling a story. Know it from every author's explanation. The story is Jesus Christ. And what you find there is the face of God. Let's pray. Father, you love your people. You are the good shepherd. You lead us to these green pastures. We graze. We are sustained. We delight in the still crystal waters of your word. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to see the concern. Thank you so much for your spirit that works in us to make us hungry now to see your solution, your remedy. We long to see it next because we delight, we delight to eat the food that comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we'll gladly sing together.